Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Resurrection Sunday. He is risen indeed. So let's uh, get started with some prayer, please. Father, thank you so much for just allowing us to gather here, uh, Lord, that we can celebrate your resurrection, the entire reason why we are saved, Father. Lord Jesus, thank you so much uh, for the work you did all those years ago, and please bless our time of studying your word this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Okay, a couple new faces like Chuck and Joyce. Uh, you guys know me, of course, but this adult Sunday school is apologetics. Do you guys know what that is? Yeah? Okay. Um, I'll repeat again for those of you that don't know my background in that. My first non-business degree is actually in apologetics and, and theology. Um, so that deals with defending the Christian faith. And after Alan Schlemmen came uh, from Stand to Reason, he and I graduated from the same school. No, we didn't know each other until uh, after the conference. But I was really convicted to have started this class. I've been attending this church for 11 years now. And well, Pastor Ben's been kind of prodding me uh, as far as starting an apologetics class. And, and God finally was screaming so loud, I, I couldn't ignore it. <laughs> so here we are. So. Today is a very important day for the Christian faith. It's a Resurrection Sunday, okay? Now, as you guys know, the, the course that we've been taking in our, in our class here, we've been um, starting out with a defense of the existence of God. For obvious reasons, we're switching course today um, to talk about a couple other uh, different topics. So the first one that we're talking about today is what is truth? Now. It's kind of annoying um, that I even have to go over this because of today's, today's society and culture. It's so troublesome in the way, uh, the way our culture approaches truth. It's odd if you guys have had any of those conversations. So the garden variety of truth was put forth by a philosopher named Aristotle. Anyone ever heard of him before? He put it this way. If you say that a thing is and it is, that is true. If you say a thing isn't and it isn't, that is true. But if you say a thing is and it isn't, that is not true. I know what you guys are thinking, really? It took Aristotle to come up with this idea? <laughs> I could have done this and made millions. <laughs> yes, that is the basic garden variety of truth. If you say something is and it actually turns out to be, it's true. If you say something is not and it turns out to not be, it's, that's true, okay? This really is not a complicated notion. However, our culture today makes it an extremely complicated notion. And where are we getting at with this? So we talk about subjective versus objective truth. Um, a lot of folks in today's culture, especially when dealing with uh, Christianity or any other historicity of the New Testament or the scriptures, they say, well, that is your mere interpretation of the facts. Um, it's just coming from you as a subjective analysis, and it's not actually true in and of itself. Well, are there actual subjective truths? Well, yeah, of course there are. For me, I believe an In-N-Out Double Double is probably one of the best burgers ever made. <laughs> Some people I've heard, including my son-in-law, tend to disagree, and they're right to be wrong in that case. <laughs> So that's an example of a subjective truth. However, when we're talking about something out there, as in away from us, apart from um, ourselves or our taste or our desires, we're talking about objective truth, right? Something that is true regardless of our interpretation of it. 
So then we start to get into semantics when others claim that we as subjects, people, look at every truth through our experiences and thus every truth is in fact subjective. Have you guys heard that yet? Okay, good. However, when everyone first came to this particular building right here, remember the very first time you came here, how did you get here? Did you look on a map? Did you use GPS? Did friends give you directions? How did you get here? My point with that is, so you're taking a look, say if you used a map, you're looking at the map, however you uh, look at that, and the map is meant to communicate the topography of this particular area, okay? You trusted that the directions on that map were accurate and they were true, even though they were apart from you, and you tested it, it said it was right here, I don't know what the address is here, but it was right here and it led you here, boom, it's true, okay? That in of itself is an objective truth. Are you guys with me? It's not subject based on the whim or the imagination of the particular cartographer that mapped it out or, or, or drew it. So belief comes from examining evidence, which then leads to a conclusion, okay? Let me, let me phrase this, because a lot of times people raise objections. So you cannot choose to believe in something. Okay, let me explain. It is happenstance based on your experience of the evidence. That's how belief comes about. So you're sitting here right now listening to me uh, and you are not choosing to believe that I'm Desi Arnaz or Elvis Presley or any other person. You are believing that I am indeed Sean Kirk. Why? Well, some of you have known me for years. Some of you have just met me but you guys believe that I am Sean Kirk. You're not choosing to believe that I'm Elvis Presley or Desi Arnaz or any other character. Does that make sense? How belief comes based upon evidence or at least your interpretation of evidence? Okay, that's gonna be important um, later. And the whole point about this is that it's only meant to show that we indeed have the faculties to determine what is true about the world. Well, at least in some vital sense. So without the capability to determine objective truth, you all would be dead in one day. What do I mean by that? If you didn't have the ability to determine objective truth and you're heading south on I-5 at 70, 80-ish miles per hour, and you don't objectively identify that this little yellow line prevents you from going into oncoming traffic and having a head-on collision, it's just your subjective truth, what would happen? You would die, right? But we have the objective truth knowing that the rules and the evidence of traffic, we know what that yellow line means. It's not up for interpretation. It is what it is. And we can know that objective truth exists and we can determine it based on the evidence around us. So this here is why you should not be too alarmed or become paralyzed with fear when you're pressed by someone from today's culture claiming that everything you think you know to be true is simply a subjective point or just your idea of the view. Okay, I want you to pay attention to what is happening here. This individual is arguing against objective truth by appealing to an objective argument. Do you, do you get that? Okay, here, let me put it in a quote, what they would end up saying. You can't know anything because all you know is a subjective point of view. Does that rule apply to what you just told me? Isn't your idea that my truth is purely a subjective point of view coming from another subjective point of view, which is yours? So this assessment is nothing more than your subjective assessment of things, and it is no closer to reality than anything else. Does that make sense? And these are the type of arguments that we face today. So where are we going with this? 
Objective truth can be known, absolutely. Reality is certainly more than just subjective interpretations of the world around us. So what about one of the most historically substantive claims of truth ever? That is the claim of the truth that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed murdered by crucifixion and indeed rose bodily three days later. That is the most powerful truth ever presented in history. According to the Christian church, the four gospels were written by the apostles and or those under the directions of the apostle of Christ. That means that they are written under the direction of eyewitnesses of actual events. Remember what I said, how you become to believe in something? It's based on evidence. You don't just choose to believe it willy-nilly. Also, none of the Gospels mention, this is important, the destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70. None of them. That is an extremely important historical fact, okay? When the temple was destroyed, it was recorded everywhere because that was a major, major, major event. We're talking like 9-11 type of event. It's going to be recorded everywhere, okay? This is significant because Jesus had prophesied concerning the temple when he said, quote, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. That's Luke 21, 6, also Matthew 24, 1, Mark 13, 1. If the Gospels had been written after the date, and if they were fabrications or not reliable, um, sorry, uh, then surely they would have contained the account of the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which are known as historical facts, but they don't. Yet Matthew, Mark, and Luke contain no such information. Luke was written before Acts, Acts 1.1. The book of Acts, a history of the Christian church, which does not mention the fall of Jerusalem either, nor does it record the death of Paul, James, and Peter, which all happened in the early 60s, as in AD 60. This means that Acts was written at least by AD 62, and Luke was written before that. Therefore, the time between the events and the writings is right around 30 years. This is going to become very significant. This further means that the eyewitnesses were around who could have corrected any statements written in the Gospels. Yet we have absolutely no corrective or contradictory writings from that time from anyone denying the accounts of the Gospels. Nobody says these things were incorrectly recorded. The Gospels do not have the sense of mythical literature. This has been another objective um, or uh, objection, sorry, that we face, that the Gospels are actually a myth like, you know, Zeus or, or any of the other Greek or Roman mythology but they have no sense of mythical literature. If anything, they're written as eyewitness accounts. Consider, consider the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke, which clearly states that it is a research document. Here it is, Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Does that even remotely sound like a story? To me, it sounds like an actual account that this particular physician, Luke, is going to record for us and write down. This is not how myths were made. This is how you uncover evidence and actually record it. Luke examined the witnesses, he interviewed them, and checked out the facts. In Luke 2, 1-2, we have historically verifiable information. 
quote, now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Also in Luke 3, 1 through 2, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod, the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Etyria, and Trachonitis and Licinius was tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. So we clearly see numerous historical statements that have been verified through archaeology. This is precise record-keeping, not extravagant additions, not myth. In fact, Sir William Ramsey has shown that in making reference to 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands, Luke makes absolutely zero mistakes in the historicity of his account of Jesus' life and resurrection. Sir William Ramsey, he lived from 1851 to 1939, was a classical scholar and archaeologist. He taught at Oxford, England, Aberdeen. He authored several scholarly books dealing with archaeology and had a major influence on it as a, as a science, as a discipline. Nevertheless, there are many verifiable things found in the gospel accounts. We don't have time to go over all of them because they're numerous, but here's a couple. Here's four. Herod, king of Judea, Matthew 14, 1, Luke 1 through 5. That is verifiable along with the time frame. Herodias, the wife of Herod's brother Philip, Matthew 14, 3. The pool of Bethsaida, we actually found it. John 5, 1 through 3, and the Pool of Siloam, John 9, 7, we found that one too. There are many, many, many more citations verified by archaeology that demonstrate the accuracy of the Gospels. When they mention events dealing with rulers, uh, places, events like a census, who was governor, etc., they are all accurate historically. Now, those of you that don't know my personal coming to faith, this was a major tenet of me coming to faith. Okay. I was at UCLA, I was in my second year of med school at the time, and I was trying to disprove Christianity and the Bible because I hated both with a vehement passion. All I was able to do at this time is to prove the things that can be proven historically, archaeological facts, dates, wars, places, people, rulers. So this began to disturb me greatly at this point. So now the, the next... Um, objection that we come across is, well, how do we know that what's written in these Gospels is actually historically reliable? We've heard the objection that it's like a giant game of telephone, right? You know, that one guy says one thing to another, and then over the time, it just gets incredibly distorted. This will be the subject of one in full class, or maybe a couple of them. It's called textual criticism, and it just deals with how accurate are the New Testament writings that we have now in our hands. How accurate are they? So here's a couple things. Have you guys heard of Plato, Caesar, and Aristotle? Right? Let's take a look at those. Okay, Plato, date written between 427 and 347 BC. The earliest copy that we have available of any of Plato's writings, 900 AD. That's 1,200 years time span between when he wrote it and our earliest copy. How many copies do we have? Seven. Caesar, 100 to 44 BC. Earliest copy, also 980. It's a thousand years. Time span between when it was first written to the earliest copy. How many do we have? 10. Aristotle, 384 to 322 BC. That's 1100 uh, years 
because 1100 AD was the very first copy that we found. So it's about 1400 year time span between the original and the earliest copy. How many do we have of Aristotle? 49. Now, this, the most historically reliable document that anti-Christian scholars will quote is Homer. Okay? And they've said that they have um, reconstructed the original of Homer with almost certain, uh, complete certainty. Okay? Let's look at Homer. When was that written? 900 B.C. The earliest copy that we have of Homer? 400 B.C. It's 500 years. 500 years between the original and our earliest copy. How many do we have? 643. What are the accuracy of the copies? About 95%. So yeah, I can see how the scholars get to that. Okay? We, we can re relatively conclude that what we read uh, of Homer, as in like the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, that it's the original. Now the New Testament. When was that written? The first century AD, between 50 and 100. Okay? Approximately um, 130 AD is our very first copy uh, before the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that came even closer and closer and closer. So the time span between the original that we have and the very first copy that we've actually found is 35 years. How many copies do we have of New Testament manuscripts? Over 26,000. What are the accuracy of the copies? Over 99.5%. Have we heard that there are variations or discrepancies in the, in the manuscripts and the copies? Yeah, sure, there are. Uh, what do they equate to? Spelling, for example, John with two N's on one manuscript, one N on another. Um, someone saying Jesus the Christ or just Jesus Christ. Um, so those are the variants. And what do those equal to? About 400,000 different variants. Do any of them reflect any changes in the doctrine or, or what we need to know in the scriptures? No, not at all. Uh, they don't. Like I said, it's, it's minor. And when we say there's over 400,000 variants, so if you have one manuscript that says Jesus the Christ and another one that says Jesus Christ, and then they copy that a thousand times after that, well, there's a thousand of your 400,000. You, you get room going with this? Okay. So noted Oxford expert on literature and myths, you guys may have heard of him, C.S. Lewis, said this, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like this, the Gospels. The Gospels don't read like mythical literature because they aren't. Regarding the Gospel of Mark, a date before AD 50 leaves no time for mythological embellishment of the records. They would have to be accepted as historical. The first accounts of Jesus are too early to be mythical. That's what C.S. Lewis said. New Testament books appeared within the lifetime of eyewitnesses and contemporaries. Luke was written by about A.D. 60, only 27 years after Jesus' death. Uh, before Acts in 60 to 62, 1 Corinthians was written right around 55 to 56, only 22 or 23 years after Jesus' death. Even radical New Testament scholar John A.T. Robinson dates basic gospel records between 40 and 60. There is no time or way for a legend to develop why the eyewitnesses were still alive to refute the story. The numerous early accounts of Jesus render a mythical explanation virtually impossible because of how closely they were written to the events that happened in time and that we have the first copies within 35 years of when they were written. So a myth, to say that the New Testament writings are mythical 
it can't happen because you get it because the authors were still alive to refute anything that would have come up. So there are three main reasons why the empty tomb is indeed a, a historical fact. So they fall under this acronym. Remember this acronym, JET, as in Juliet Echo Tango, okay? Jerusalem Factor, J, uh, M, enemy, and then enemy testimony is E, and then the testimony of women, T. So let's get into that. So first, is the, there is the Jerusalem Factor. Early Christians began preaching Jesus' resurrection in Jerusalem. We know this to be the case due to the numerous references in the Gospels to the preaching in Jerusalem, for example, Luke 24, 47. The book of Acts and Paul's undisputed letters, such as Galatians 1 through 2, where the church is headquartered in Jerusalem. Christianity would have had an extremely difficult time being able to survive in Jerusalem with this apostolic preaching if the body of Jesus had still been in the tomb. Second, there's the enemy testimony, or enemy attestation. That's the E part of the JET acronym. In other words, the early critics of Christianity indirectly presupposed the empty tomb. See Matthew 28, 12 through 13. Justin Martyr, Dialogue with Trifio 108, Tertullian, Despectiolatus uh, 30. These are non-Christian writers that deal with the evidence of the empty tomb. For example, in Matthew 28, 12 through 13, the Jews acknowledged the empty tomb by stating that the disciples stole the body. And when they, here it is, and when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Third, there's the testimony of women. You guys may have heard this before. The women are the first chief witnesses of the empty tomb. Due to the lack of respect for women in first century Jewish culture, it is extremely unlikely that if the empty tomb was a myth, that the apostles would appeal to women as the chief uh, evidence for it. That's not going to happen, not in that culture. Instead, they would have appealed to men as their primary witnesses. Even in the Gospel of Luke, the empty tomb and the appearance of Jesus to the women are seen as nonsense by the disciples, Luke 24, 10 through 11. So the following are some interesting quotations regarding ancient people's view of women. First is Josephus. You guys have heard me mention him before. This is what Josephus said in his book, Antiquities of the Jews, about women. But let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex, nor let servants be admitted to give testimony on account of their ignobility of their soul, since it is probable that they may not speak truth either out of hope or gain, or fear of punishment. The Talmud, okay, the Jewish scriptures, says this about testimonies of women. Every, any evidence which a woman gives is not valid to offer. Also, they are not valid in any way. This is equivalent to saying that one who is rabbinically accounted a robber is qualified to give the same evidence as a woman. That's in the Talmud, Rosh Hashanah 1.8. Sooner let the words of the law be burnt than be delivered to women. Talmud, Sata 19a. So my point with this is, is not to rain condemnation on the Jews for their, you know, um, opinion <laughs> of the verifiability of, of a women's testimony, but to note that don't you guys think it's odd that the New Testament writers appealed to a source in their time and culture was the most discredited, unreliable thing. It'd be like us appealing to something we read on Facebook to prove the resurrection. <laughs> no, don't want to do that, Gabe. <laughs> Wild. Yeah, 
Google. Right, then, then Google's definitely true. So therefore, due to the Jerusalem factor, J, the enemy testimony, E, and the testimony of women, T, it is quite reasonable to believe that Jesus' tomb was indeed found empty on that Sunday morning. It will only take one thing to destroy Christianity completely. One thing, just one, will render the Christian faith worthless. One thing will make your hope in Christ vain. One thing will make Christians the objects of scorn and contempt and with good reason. If the most bizarre thing Christian believers turns out to be false, if a brutally crucified man did not walk from his tomb, if Jesus never rose from the dead, then Paul conceded Christianity will be finished. And we of all people are most to be pitied, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If, however, Jesus rose from the dead, then everything critical to Christianity is true. If Jesus stayed dead, everything uniquely important about Christianity is false. It is literally all or nothing at this point. But is it true? Do we have good reason to trust in the resurrection? Well, I'll give you three more evidences firmly rooted in history. That makes the case along with the questions you can use to maneuver tackling in conversations. Um, so first things first though, what is the minimum we'd have to show to verify a resurrection? Well, it seems we'd only need to show that a person was truly dead at one point in time and then was truly alive at a later point in time, right? What would do it? If not, then why not? So our strategy is gonna focus on these two points and this is where history is gonna help us. Only three essential facts are needed to make our case that Jesus died then rose. Here they are. One, Jesus was dead and buried. Two, the tomb was empty. Three, the disciples were transformed. That's it. Nothing fancy, nothing complicated. So these conversations can go pretty well with those that are non-believers. So note two critical details about these facts, though. First, each piece of evidence is about something completely earthly, right? I'm not appealing to any spiritual matters at this point. Nothing supernatural, only natural. A corpse, an empty tomb, and apparent personal encounters with some sort of changing doubters into believers. Second, though most New Testament scholars do not think Jesus rose from the dead, there's a split decision on that question, on the main, they affirm all three of those minimal facts. The critics side with us on the essentials, confirming that the basic evidences themselves are historically reliable. So let's look at them one by one. Number one, Jesus was dead and buried. Is there anybody of credibility um, for critics that re reject that notion that Jesus was in fact dead and buried? There is no academic dispute on this point. After brutally beating and flogging Jesus, battle-seasoned Roman soldiers executed him on a cross and declared him dead, plunging a spear through his chest for good measure. He was then embalmed with 80 pounds of spices wrapped up and sealed in a stone tomb. That is history, folks. There is nobody that um, rejects that fact. Even atheistic New Testament critics hold that that was a very true fact. Jesus was dead, he was buried, he was embalmed, and he was sealed in a stone tomb. So based on the record, it is, is it reasonable to conclude that Jesus survived that ordeal? If not, the first piece of the resurrection puzzle is in place. Jesus was dead, right? Now on to our second piece. Was Jesus alive at a later time? The tomb was empty on Sunday morning. That's another historical fact. Now where we as Christians and atheists differ is how that tomb became empty. Nearly three quarters of all scholars agree here since the empty tomb was never disputed by anyone at the time. 
even the Jews and Romans, why was Jesus' body never produced to quell the rumor of resurrection? If the disciples stole it or whatever, why? Why didn't they? There you go. That's the end of Christianity. Produce the corpse. Done. Here's the question. Where was the body? Stolen? Well, by whom? The Jews wanted Jesus dead. We know that. So did the Romans. That leaves the disciples. But why would they carry off Jesus' corpse? And how would they get past the guard? The record shows that they did not expect a resurrection anyway. Read Mark. I had a professor that once referred to the disciples in Mark as dumb bunnies because they didn't get it. <laughs> they absolutely didn't get it until after they'd seen the resurrected Christ. Plus, the disciples had nothing to gain by lying except being beaten, whipped, stoned, crucified, or beheaded. This is why virtually all historians today reject this option. Um, I can't remember his name. He was, he was one of the, uh, the Watergate guys, one of the Watergate conspirators. And it's one of the best quotes I've ever heard about the resurrection. He became a Christian based on this fact. He said there was 12 of us, lawyers, as you know, in the Watergate scandal. Lawyers, people of, of professional stature. We were not able to keep a lie for three weeks. How did the disciples do it for 40 years if it was indeed a lie? So the disciples, and this is another fact, were transformed. Even the most critical scholars acknowledge that the disciples proclaimed the resurrection at their peril because they thought they, that they encountered the risen Christ. Many paid the ultimate price, including the skeptic James and former executioner of Christians, Paul, choosing death rather than to retract what he had said. So what did they all see? Whom did they meet with, walk with, even eat with? Some say they imagined or hallucinated the risen Christ. Okay, how? Different people at different times and different locations, individually and in groups, all imagining the same thing at the same time or having the same hallucination at the same time? Really? That doesn't fit. That doesn't fit at all. Note the hallucinations, like dreams, are entirely private experiences. Others can't join you in your sensory delusions. It doesn't happen, especially over and over and over again with different groups of people. Something else was indeed going on. What was it? And if possibly a hallucination or an uh, imagining of some sort, what of the empty tomb? We know that the tomb was empty, which brings us to our final most important question. What single explanation makes sense of all the historical details that virtually every academic in the field agrees on? The death of Jesus, the empty tomb, and the transformation of the disciples and the skeptics. What single interpretation accounts for all of those facts? Here it is. It's the answer that Peter gives, the only answer that fits all of the evidence. Quote, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, Acts 2.32. Those who disagree must solve this problem. What is a better explanation of the facts? In the final analysis, the one thing that can destroy Christianity turns out to be the one thing that verifies everything important. Put simply, he is risen. <laughs> Any questions, guys, on that one? Seriously? <laughs> That's usually a pretty hot topic, uh, folks. For those listening online, Mrs. Kirk, my, my bride, is paying, playing devil's advocate, so. Um, when uh, there was a mass movement um, in Catholicism and they all met up, right? Did they all see the vision of Mary? Her question was, for those listening online, when there's a mass movement, say, in Catholicism, and they all met up and saw a vision of Mary. 
think they were in the desert and they all went out and prayed. And they, they were in the desert yeah, and they all went out and prayed. Hundreds right. Hundreds of yep. eyewitness accounts of seeing the Virgin Mary in the clouds. Hundreds of eyewitness accounts of seeing the Virgin Mary in the clouds. So how is that different from what we are claiming that it cannot be a hallucination for the seeing the resurrected Christ? So do mass hallucinations happen? Yeah, um, they do. Uh, and we have seen them recorded throughout history. People are, are uh, a finicky bunch, right? A, a person itself is smart. People are stupid, okay? Uh, you know, the herd mentality. We all get together and do crazy, crazy things. So the main difference between what my wife brought up with um, the Catholics seeing the resurrected Mary in the clouds in the desert at this point to what the skeptics and disciples saw of Christ is that was at one point in time at one place with everyone there. There are many, many different encounters by many different people, separate times, separate places, that saw the risen Christ. Okay. And I think the other word that you just said there, skeptics. Skeptics, exactly. Right. So these were all believers in the Catholic sense that, you know, they had already um, been sold out on the resurrection of, of Mary and were willing to see it. But as Gabe pointed out, the skeptics of Christ had seen the risen Christ. These were people that did not want to believe. They didn't have any reason to believe. As a matter of fact, their belief in this almost meant certain death or torture or at least ostracization. Yes? The big difference between Mary's appearance to the eyes only and to the ears of the people said they heard her. Not everybody heard her. Right. Absolutely. Again to repeat for those listening online, the point made was the experience of Mary in the clouds um, was uh, just auditory or, or visual. They either heard her or they only saw her, which can definitely be explained through hallucinations or, or some type of interpretation. The experiences of Christ were physical. They touched him, they handled him, uh, they ate with him, they hugged him. Uh, so these are very, very different. Now, the reason why I went at the very beginning as far as what is truth, because some people will say that, well, that is your subjective uh, interpretation of the facts, or those disciples are skeptics. skeptics. It was just merely subjective of them experiencing the risen Christ. And that's why I had to go through that whole long spiel of what is truth. I know it's annoying, and it's weird that people even question that something is true. I mean, it's like we're transported, you know, back to the summer of love, right? You know, 1963, you know, we're just think we're there, man. You know, we're not really here. So, no, objective truth is absolutely true. And the skeptics and the disciples and everyone that experiences Christ experienced him objectively. Now, when we're talking about Christ working objectively, they experienced him outside of themselves. Um, you know, and when we're talking about, say, like my personal salvation uh, um, experience, is that a, a valid argument or a valid defense for the resurrection of Christ? No, because that's a subjective experience, right? I can take, you know, how my life was and how I am now. So that's not going to work. So don't use that on the street. Um, but what will work is many, many of these evidences 
that we see that all uh, historians agree on, and those are those three facts. They, even the non-Christian atheistic historians agree that Jesus was dead and buried, 100% fact. The tomb was empty, 100% fact. And the disciples, for some reason, were radically changed after that fact. Now we come to different conclusions as far as why the tomb was empty and why the disciples were changed. But those th three facts cannot be refuted. And it's very, very interesting to note that they can't be. So that leads to a, a very um, important decision that folks are gonna have to make, right? What do you do with that information? What do you do with that knowledge? It's the most important question you'll ever have to answer in your life. Any other questions? No more devil's advocate, Mrs. Kirk? <laughs> I think it's worth pointing out on the, as he was, as he was talking about, it's multi-central. Right. I think, as I'm sitting here thinking about it, one sense at a time can be subjective, right? And I think about how, like, if you see, if you only see, you're gonna see what you wanna see. Right. If you're, you know, like a haunted house, like when you're a kid and you have the peeled grapes, <laughs> subjectively that could be eyeballs, <laughs> right? But as soon as you start using multiple senses, right, when you smell that bowl of grapes or you see that bowl of grapes, all of a sudden it's not eyeballs anymore, mm -hmm. right? And that's where we see what the disciples is that he said, like, they ate with him, they hugged him, so they smelled him. Right. They hugged him, so they touched him. Uh -huh. They saw him. It's multi-central, which every time you experience something multi-centrally, that's an objective experience. So Gabe's point, again, for those listening online, is that um, the disciples and the skeptics, the ones that saw the risen Christ, that they experienced him through all of their senses. It wasn't just hearing him and it wasn't just seeing him. So they hugged him, so they smelled him, they touched him, um, they saw him, they heard him, they heard his voice, um, they were able to eat with him. And I can't think of any uh, hallucinatory drug that would affect every single one of our senses simultaneously. Either you're gonna see or hear weird stuff, but you're not gonna see, hear, feel, taste, smell weird stuff all at the same time. Well, and it's certainly not the same thing for everybody. Right. Right, and not the same thing for everybody. Yeah, exactly. Hallucinogenics, but I'm assuming. <laughs> right, I don't have any experiences with LSD, so I can't but, speak to knowledge on this one. Experience is the same, they do that at the same time. Right, exactly. I mean, yeah. I, that the eyewitness accounts were the same as across town. In a mass hysteria situation, you're talking amongst yourself. You're like, did you hear her? And you can almost be talked into it, right? And those were the eyewitness accounts of Mary. Is they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard that too. Yeah, right. yeah. But these are eyewitness accounts that are separate from each other. Right. They didn't come all together and then compare notes. And they all experienced the same thing, right. multi-sensory accounts of the, the eyewitnesses across in different locations, many, many different times, different locations, different groups of people. It wasn't just uh, followers of Christ. It was skeptics. It was even enemies was of Romans. Christ. It was Romans people that were directly responsible for the crucifixion. So this, this story to, that we're told in the New Testament scriptures to you know, be relegated as myth or as um, just a, a, a conspiracy for the disciples to form this new religion, it doesn't make sense at all. Nothing about that makes sense. I mean, th the main thing that I would ask everyone is, are you willing to die for a lie? What you know to be a lie. So if, you, if they stole... Jesus' body, for example. They obviously know his resurrection was a lie. Why would you die for that? Why would you die for what you know to be a lie? That's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. 
Yes. Right. The the question was, how can the disciples get past the guards being disciples? You know, and and this was a, and not military. That's been one of the greatest questions of history. It, it's like, you well, know, they, they say they cried. They right. they yeah, that wouldn't have worked either. Not not with the Roman centurion. No way. Um, you know, and, and it's like us trying to overcome, you know, a group of, like, SEAL Team 6, right? That's not going to work. It's not like they were made of money. Yeah. Yes. The guards were de most definitely killed. Yes, they were. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, I know, the centurion's falling asleep. No, that's not going to happen. Yeah, no, we'll pay you next week. <laughs> right, right, yeah, we'll pay, you, we'll pay you next week. You know, it checks in the mail. <laughs> it's, it's the worst IOU of history, I guess. <laughs> All right, well, thanks, guys. Looks like uh, church is wrapping up, and we are out of time.